Hello again, Macrodose listeners. Happy New Year. Producer Ben here bringing you our second and final holiday special before we return to the normal show next week. We've selected another three of our favourite stories from the last year. Our first story is from back in June, when the British government's debt grew bigger than national income for the first time since 1961. How worried should we really be? Our second story comes from back in March, when we saw the sudden disappearance of tomatoes and other fruit and veg from Britain's supermarket shelves. Is Brexit really to blame? And finally, James looks at an investigation from the New York Times revealing the real-world damage caused by cryptocurrencies. Time for our first story. To begin with today, I want to take a quick look back at last week and the updated figures from the Office for National Statistics that showed inflation remained consistently high last month, flatlining at a, quote, deeply worrying 8.7%, exactly the same figure as the previous month. This was even worse news than I and most economists had expected. We also had, on top of that, a wave of media hysteria around the news that the government's own debt was now bigger than the total UK gross domestic product. In other words, the government owes in debt more than the entire value of what the UK economy actually produced last year. This is the first time this has happened since the early 1960s, when the government was paying down its Second World War debts. So well over a decade after the austerity programme was launched by the 2010 coalition government, with the excuse that it was necessary to bring debt under control, it is very obvious that we've gone backwards on that supposed goal. If it wasn't dead already, this news should put the final nail in the coffin of the myth that austerity can reliably reduce debt-to-GDP ratios. But I'm not sure this fact is reaching all or any corners of the House of Commons. Whilst the Tories gather dust mulling over plans for a new wave of austerity, we have a Labour Party that is becoming fixated on their so-called fiscal rules. These have not been spelled out too precisely, but we do know that they include a focus on that measure of debt falling at the end of a five-year period in government. And remember, these are self-imposed rules, which Labour is seemingly prioritising over a genuine response to the real-life crisis we're facing, whether it's cost-of-living crisis or climate change. Putting these two stories together, whilst there aren't many upsides from high inflation, one for the government, at least, is that a higher rate of inflation does help to more quickly erode the burden of its debt. Debt has to be paid in money, and because inflation pushes up prices, more money is moving through the economy as a result, and this means more money will also now be flowing back to the government in the form of tax revenues. That, in theory, means repaying the government debt gets easier when inflation is higher. VAT is a really obvious example of this effect. Because the VAT charge depends on the price of the thing being bought, more expensive things have bigger VAT bills attached to them. Which means that when inflation tends to make everything more expensive, VAT revenues tend to rise. The result is more money coming into government as a direct result of inflation. The underlying principle here is the difference between real terms values versus monetary values. In the same way that inflation reduces the real value of your income, since you can now only buy less for the same amount of money, the same idea applies to government debt. The same amount of debt is now worth less in real terms because of inflation. Slightly higher inflation and consistent economic growth is how Britain fairly rapidly was able to reduce the real burden of its Second World War debt. So, given all these factors, does that mean that government debt is nothing to worry about? Well, not quite, unfortunately. First, there is one big complication here. About a quarter of UK government debt is what is called index-linked to inflation, so that when inflation rises, the amount the government has to pay to its lenders holding this kind of debt also goes up. That raises the amount of interest payments the government has to make, as do rising interest rates in general. 
Total government interest payments to its creditors this year are likely to come to around £100 billion, or about the same as the education budget. As a share of GDP, those interest payments are as high now as they were shortly after World War II. If, as after World War II, the underlying economy was recovering rapidly and motoring along with record growth rates, this really wouldn't be such a problem. Economic growth and slightly higher inflation would rapidly reduce the debt burden, but obviously that isn't actually happening now. The British economy is in a uniquely bad place amongst the major developed countries. Former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, Andrew Posen, recently argued in the Financial Times that we should really now be thinking about Britain as a so-called emerging market country. In other words, like a much poorer, less developed country. His basic point is correct. The 15 years since the financial crash, especially the 13 years since the austerity programme began, have seen underlying economic growth, that's productivity growth, dwindle away in Britain. It's not been particularly great anywhere in the developed world, but Britain has performed dramatically worse than other large developed economies. Our collective borrowing from the rest of the world, that's not just government borrowing, but all of us, has risen over this period of time in what amounts to a collective attempt to maintain our living standards that has actually mostly worked to the benefit of the richest people here. Now, Posen argues against austerity and for tax rises on the richest to pay for, quote, significant wage increases for NHS workers, teachers and lecturers, transport workers and so on. He thinks public investment should be increased in energy and public transport. He thinks the benefit system is too, quote, mean and creates, quote, perverse disincentives to work. More controversially, he thinks house prices should be allowed to fall and private lenders made to carry the costs of bailing out borrowers if needed. This is what he thinks a stabilisation programme for an emerging market economy might look like, and he's basically right. In theory, looking to redistribute money to the wider population using tax rises on the rich and rebuilding those essential systems are all good ways to set a floor to future economic collapse. Unlike most emerging market economies, Britain is actually a rich country. Its greatest remaining strength, really, is that we are able to tax the wealthy here properly if we decided to actually do that. But what should frighten all of us, however, is something Posen highlights, which is the, quote, political impossibility of such a programme here in Britain today. This is worse than just the Tories, who rarely contemplate raising taxes to make the wealthy pay a fair share. It's about the whole set of established economic institutions we have, from the Treasury to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, that given the sets of problems we face, won't consider taxing wealth, but will instead offer endless cycles of panic about debt and lurches back towards demands for an implementation of austerity. And again, we have a current Labour leadership which seems to buckle under those pressures even before it's anywhere near being actually in power. All of this together points to a deep, systemic failure of the kind we've not seen in this country in very different circumstances since the 1970s, or further back, the 1930s. The problem here isn't so much that the debt has grown too big, it's that the economy it sits on is too weak, and that weakness is best seen in low household incomes and obscene levels of inequality, both of which government could be addressing directly. It's not just that the immediate problems are hard, is that we don't have institutions collectively capable of addressing them properly. What it points to is the need for an anti-systemic thinking and an anti-systemic movement, one that can cut through the failures of the mainstream. Last week, Asda and Morrisons were amongst a number of supermarkets to announce rationing on a range of goods, placing a cap on customers' purchases of everyday items, including lettuce, tomatoes and cucumbers. In much of the press, there's been a noticeable rush to pin the blame for these shortages on Brexit. 
People have been posting pictures on social media of supermarket shelves in Germany and France and elsewhere in Europe positively groaning with fruit and veg. But when you see that Ireland, still happily inside the EU, is also reporting that certain fresh foods are running short, it should be obvious that Brexit isn't entirely to blame here. The current Brexit deal has definitely involved additional complications and costs for those trying to trade with Europe, and these costs have added up. The Centre for Economic Performance at London School of Economics estimates that food prices are 3% higher this year as a result of Brexit, resulting from the additional red tape that buying food from the EU now involves. And that works out as about an extra £210 a year for each household on average. It's not nothing. But food price inflation is now running at 16% a year, so that 3% is only a small part of the whole rise in prices. When you look beneath the Brexit headlines, it becomes clear that the UK, like Ireland, is suffering shortages for a number of different reasons. Perhaps the most obvious of these are geography and climate. Britain, like Ireland and the rest of Northern Europe, isn't somewhere that can grow tomatoes in February. They need to be imported from much warmer climates. If they're being grown in a greenhouse here, those greenhouses will need heating during the winter, which, given the huge increase in the cost of energy over the last year, has meant farmers cutting back on heating costs by growing fewer tomatoes. If we want tomatoes in winter, they need to be imported. So from December to March, we in Britain import 95% of the tomatoes we eat and about 90% of the lettuce, for instance. Now that dependency in imports isn't just about winter fruit and veg. We import just under half the food we eat by value. That dependency in imports has been growing since the early 1990s, ironically since Britain's entry into the single market really expanded the range of food we could buy in from Europe. For most of the post-war period, Britain, which had become a massive food importer during the Industrial Revolution, was approaching self-sufficiency in food. In any case, once we had an import dependency like this, it meant that we as a country were very much more exposed to shocks in the rest of the world. So the big increase in prices we've seen in Britain is due to the same things that everyone else right across the world has experienced over the last 18 months. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had spectacular economic impacts, with supplies from the world's largest exporters of grain and other essential foods severely disrupted. Ukraine's harvests, understandably, were very poor last year, with about one quarter of its farmland out of use. Russia, as well as food, is the world's largest exporter of raw materials for fertiliser. And the resulting shortages have seen fertiliser prices soar, leading farmers across the world in turn to pull back on the amount of fertiliser they use, cutting the size of their harvests. So energy costs have risen, transport costs have risen and fertiliser costs have risen. And now what the media reports as, quote, poor weather towards the end of last year in southern Europe and North Africa has further restricted harvests. But this isn't just poor weather, it's climate change. As climate change has accelerated, the world's weather systems are being thrown into chaos. Extreme weather events, from floods to droughts, are multiplying. But extreme weather affects harvests right across the world. The last year, for example, saw extreme heat across Europe that reduced potato and sugar beet harvests by up to 50% in Britain. Grain maize harvests in Europe are forecast to be down 16%. Further afield, coffee harvests in Brazil are being hammered by frosts, followed by droughts. Cattle ranchers and citrus fruit growers in the southern states of the US have been hit by combinations of floods, hurricanes, tornadoes and extreme heat. So this situation is already bad and it's set to get worse. The respected foreign policy think tank Chatham House has warned of, quote, growing threats to global food security. Already, the United Nations is warning of 345 million people facing starvation across the globe over the next year, typically in poorer countries. 
For the developed world, the primary impacts are likely to be rising prices in the first instance with, as we have seen, intermittent shortages and rationing. But as we've seen with soaring energy prices, the fact that some essentials have shot up in price or perhaps aren't even available at all isn't going to be bad news for everyone. If the price you pay for something has gone up, someone else must be making more money from you. So as food prices have soared, the giant agribusinesses that dominate the world's food systems have made record profits. Like the fossil fuel companies exploiting soaring gas and oil prices, the four biggest grain traders globally have reported all-time high revenues and profits. Oxfam reports that food billionaires, as they call them, the ultra-rich whose wealth comes mainly from owning food businesses, have seen their wealth grow by 42% since the pandemic. Speculation has amplified the problem with speculators using borrowed money to drive up global prices. Meanwhile, many countries that are big exporters of agricultural products, like Malaysia and India, have imposed bans on exports to make sure they can meet the needs of their own populations first. But this has the effect, in turn, of worsening the problem of low global supplies. In our global capitalist economy, producers for export will sell to the highest bidder, with richer countries or groups of countries like the EU able to outbid others. Moroccan suppliers of tomatoes, for example, have found the EU trade deal more valuable than either selling exports to their near neighbours or indeed their post-Brexit deal with Britain. The result has been a tomato shortage in Britain. Industry forecasts now suggest food prices will continue to rise steeply over the first months of this year as the impacts of bad harvests play out. We should then, if the forecasts are correct, see some improvement with prices even starting to come down. But the longer-term picture is bleak. We need a thorough overhaul of how we grow and distribute our food. Reducing the power of agribusinesses and speculators to profit from instability would help ease price spikes and shortages. For Britain, a new approach would mean carving out the dependency and imports of food and fertiliser, creating a better balance between domestic production and domestic consumption, and investing heavily in ecologically friendly new farming technologies like resource-saving automation. So the food shortages we are seeing over recent weeks are a reason for concern. But unfortunately, this is bigger than Brexit. Unless we start to get our heads around a future that includes an unstable climate and intermittent ecological collapse, we're going to have to face many more empty baskets in our supermarket alleys. This week, the New York Times published a detailed and revealing investigation into the real-world impacts of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Now, if you've had your fingers in your ears and have been singing loudly whenever anyone mentions Bitcoin over the last decade or so, I can hardly blame you. But to quickly recap, a cryptocurrency is a digital asset intended to work as a medium of exchange. In other words, like a currency. Through a computer network that is not reliant on a central authority like a government or a bank to uphold the value of the asset. You don't have a bank account that tells you how much your cryptocurrency is worth. The government doesn't tell you how much it wants from you in taxes and shoves a value onto the currency that you're holding. So by decentralising claims and value in this way, supporters of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin say they can provide a store for personal wealth that is theoretically beyond restriction and confiscation. In principle, a cryptocurrency could be completely anonymous in the same way as cash. So unlike a conventional bank account, which provides a register of transactions, or a central bank digital currency, a new kind of currency being developed by central banks in which you would hold a bank account with the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan or the People's Bank of China or whoever, and that would act as the currency that you use on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Over the last few years, particularly since the mid-2010s, there's been a huge amount of investment flowing into cryptocurrencies of various sorts. Bitcoin is the oldest and the most famous, but there's been a proliferation of these digital assets with some of the biggest institutions and wealthiest individuals on the planet sticking absolutely vast sums of money into cryptocurrencies. At the height of the boom in 2021, for example, Tesla was making more profit from its holdings of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin than it was from selling cars. Now, since then, the value of cryptocurrencies has basically crashed, impoverishing some luckless speculators and also revealing just an extraordinary amount of fraud and mis-selling, with the former crypto exchange FTX being the most notorious example here. But this isn't only something that happens in the immaterial digital world. What the New York Times investigation shows is just how much real-world damage cryptocurrencies are doing. The problem comes from the so-called mining of bitcoins and other similar cryptocurrencies. The idea here is that to generate new bitcoins requires a massive amount of computing power applied to solving an equation that becomes progressively harder the more bitcoins are already in existence. The idea here is that this simulates the actual mining of precious metals, like gold or silver, which get used once upon a time to make traditional currencies. Bitcoins become harder to obtain once the easy seams have been mined, so to speak. So just like in the material world, there is supposed to be a scarcity control applied to the value of the cryptocurrency. The actual currencies we have today and that we use today, whether it's dollars or pounds or yen or whatever it might be, don't actually really work like this and haven't for really quite a long time. But historically, you did have currencies that were tied, however tenuously, to some precious metal, typically gold or silver. Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, provide a kind of digital version of that, or at least that's the theory, by having this principle of mining that becomes progressively harder the more currencies are in existence. So they simulate the scarcity through this process of algorithmically generating new cryptocurrencies. When the equation is confirmed by the networkers being solved, the miner of that cryptocurrency is rewarded with another Bitcoin. At the time of writing, a single Bitcoin can be exchanged for around $28,000, so there's a significant incentive to generate the things. But this requires real number crunching to solve the algorithms, and that requires a great deal of computational power, which in turn requires a very large amount of energy. The US mining operations exposed by the New York Times demonstrate, amongst other things, the huge environmental damage being caused by the expansion of Bitcoin mining. They found vast compounds of specially cooled sheds hidden away in remote locations, which contain banks and banks of dedicated computers trying to grind through the algorithms necessary to generate a new coin. Each of the 34 operations identified by the New York Times used at least as much power as 30,000 American homes. And the biggest single mining operation, Riot Platforms at Rockdale, Texas, used the same amount of power as 300,000 homes. So in a shocking statistic, across the whole of the United States, crypto mining has added the equivalent of a second New York City's worth of demand for electricity. Now, this is relatively new to see this in the US on this scale. Up until 2021, most mining took place in China, where electricity at the time is very cheap and very abundant. Crypto farms could be found in other parts of the world where natural sources of energy were readily available, like Iceland, for example, which has both a ready supply of hydroelectric power and the double advantage of a cold climate to keep your computers cool. But most crypto mining in the 2010s was in China, with its cheap electricity. But since a clampdown by Chinese authorities in 2021, which cited, amongst other things, concerns about energy use, crypto miners have been driven out of the country. At this point, many operations moved to the US instead, where the Bitcoin mines have been guzzling electricity at a cracking pace. 
Calculations by Wood McKenzie, the energy consultancy, suggest that mining in Texas alone has added 5% to household energy bills there, or about $1.8 billion a year, as crypto mining demand has pushed up the price of relatively scarce local electricity. And despite the claims of at least some crypto enthusiasts, that additional demand for electricity has been typically met by fossil fuels, with the Times estimating about 85% of US crypto mining depends on fossil fuel energy. The final twist in the madness is this. Because large parts of the US have been hit by extreme weather in recent years, demand for electricity has been very volatile. The extreme heat last summer, for example, drove up demand for air conditioning. To meet these spikes in demand, local electricity companies have negotiated deals with crypto miners that, in return for the miners shutting down their operations, something that they can do pretty quickly, essentially they flick off a switch to turn off a computer, and they'll be paid compensation. So in Texas, crypto miners have been paid $60 million by electricity companies just for the promise that they will shut down their operations when needed. When winter storms hit the state last year, knocking out power plants and so reducing electricity supply, one mining operation there was paid up to $125 million to keep its computers out of action. What you've got here is something that starts to look quite close to ecological blackmail. There are ways to make cryptos less ecologically disastrous. Ethereum, a later and more sophisticated version of the fundamental crypto technology, switched in September last year from the proof-of-work mining method, generating new tokens that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies use, to the idea of proof-of-stake, where an Ethereum owner can pledge a certain amount of their tokens as a guarantee they will properly validate new tokens in the whole cryptocurrency network. The result has been a more than 99% decrease in the amount of power Ethereum uses. Astonishingly, this reduction is estimated to be equivalent to the amount of electricity used by Austria. Now, on the show last week, I mentioned a peculiar little story in the Financial Times where one of Norway's biggest arms manufacturers was complaining about the electricity use of a nearby data centre, specifically blaming TikTok for using up the electricity it needed in a fairly obvious propaganda or PR spin on the story. Cryptocurrency is another version of the same issue. After decades in which energy in the developed world seemed to be cheap and plentiful, particularly relative to the amount of computing power that could be squeezed out of that energy, we're now placing such huge demands on our creaking energy systems that conflicts between different uses are moving from an occasional problem, in extreme circumstances, to a regular and increasing risk. If we all have to start thinking more carefully about how electricity is used in a world facing real and growing ecological constraints, it's extremely hard to justify a future in which a second New York City is guzzling up our energy supplies to fuel the production of pretend money. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose. 